Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. From the stern tower of the Breath of Horus, I watched the pantomime of human frailty that was being played out below me. Traditionally, the populace is allowed to eat its fill of the meats of the hunt upon the foreshore, just as long as none of the spoils are carried away. Living, as we do, in a verdant land, which is fertilised and watered by the great river, our people are well fed. However, the staple diet of the poorer classes is grain, and months may pass between their last mouthful of meat and the next. Added to which... The festival was a time when all the normal restraints of everyday life were thrust aside. There was licence to excess in all things of the body, in food and drink and carnal passion. There would be sore bellies and aching heads and matrimonial recriminations on the morrow. But this was the first day of the festival, and there was no check on any appetite. Now, that was a reading from River God, Wilbur Smith's epic novel set in ancient Egypt, in which the hero, Taita, is describing the aftermath of a hippo hunt. In our last episode, we discussed the Hyksos and the historical background to River God with our special guest, Professor Joanne Fletcher, on revisiting Professor of Archaeology at the University of York. And I'm delighted to say that Joanne has agreed to join us again to tell us more about life in ancient Egypt. Joanne, welcome back. Lovely to be here. Now, in that passage that Tom read so brilliantly, Taita observes that the Egyptian people, thanks to the Nile, are remarkably well fed. How, I'm just out of curiosity, how, how kind of good was the life of the average Egyptian? I mean, were, I mean, were they, as it were, like peasants in medieval times? I think it depends on who we're comparing the ancient Egyptians to. Certainly when you compare them to the average citizen of Greece or Rome, life was much, much better in Egypt. The weather was consistently better. Crops grew with far less effort. I mean, you still, obviously, it's back-breaking soil, but you know that if you plant that crop, the River Nile's there. It's going to get watered. You know, you've got your irrigation system there. You know what's happening. The sun will shine. The crops will grow. Um, So, obviously, sometimes if the Nile was particularly low, there would be famine. The Nile was too high, there would be floods floods far more extensive than the normal and so obviously there were problems in life but in terms of the day-to-day life of working people it does seem far preferable to certainly life in ancient Greece ancient Rome and in medieval Britain I would have said where let's face it so much of the time it, it would have been rain or being cold it was a miserable existence at least in Egypt, there were some perks, and, and while the average person would have been existing on a diet of largely bread, as sure. uh, lots of people still do today, it's the staple food in Egypt, always has been, supplemented by vegetables and fruit. Um, there were always fish from the Nile. You could go hunting in the desert to catch um, wildlife. 
and at the religious ceremonies, of which there were quite a few, um, public uh, festivals were there when people got to eat beef and meat and so forth. Uh, and so while it, it wouldn't have been, a, you know, um, beer and Skittles every day, it would have still been far, far better. If I had to go back in time to any of these places, I would much prefer, prefer to have gone back to ancient Egypt than, than pretty much anywhere else until relatively recently in in our our own our own culture and and you know don't get me started on women and how they were treated back then and now you know it's uh, it's interesting it's interesting for sure. Um, we've been talking about the uh, the kind of the the ordinary people. I'd quite like to jump back to to the royals because in Rivergod. Um, our protagonists are very much the the, 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 the nobles and the royal family. Um, and I was really intrigued again by sort of the historical parallels to what Rob was writing about. So uh, again, I'm going to mispronounce all these names, but Salitis or Salitis, the Hyksos king, um, he's a, he appears in the novel uh, at the head of this army of chariots and he, and he is a historical person, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the problem with the Hyksos is we're not just uh, we we know they existed, but we're looking at them through a Greek lens, because when the Greeks conquered Egypt under Alexander the Great, three three two BC, he established three centuries of Greek rule over Egypt, the Ptolemies, the, the dynasty of Cleopatra, and the great thing about that is that uh, the Ptolemies brought in this wonderful idea of uh, studying. Egypt's much more ancient past, they took on a huge number of uh, scribes, scholars, researchers to translate any and every ancient Egyptian text they could find, translate it into Greek for them to better understand. And it's this Greek information that's come down to us, which is why a lot of uh, the names we have for Egyptian characters have uh, Greek endings or a Greek form. In, as I said at the, the beginning of this, like Hyksos is really the Greek version of Hekahasut. Uh -huh. And so are the names of some of the Hyksos, Salitis, Apophis, uh, like Egyptian pharaohs, Tutmosis, Amenophis. Slight twist on the ancient er, er, Egyptian originals. Um, and also it's notoriously difficult sometimes to fully clarify exactly what was going on under the Hyksos because post-Hyksos, the Egyptians themselves did uh, try and remove all trace of, of a, a lot of the things that the Hyksos themselves had done um, in their country. So you're looking at all this information being processed by Greek minds in the last few centuries BC of something that happened over a thousand years earlier. And we, in turn, are looking at what the Greeks are saying about this. So it's yeah. that's why it's all so bitty, if you like, and, and so difficult. And that's why every few years, uh, with new discoveries mm. in Egypt, we're finding even pharaohs we'd never heard of before. Only a few years ago, the Americans discovered a completely new Egyptian pharaoh at Abydos, who'd uh, been around in, in the Second Intermediate Period during the so-called Hyksos period, we didn't know anything about this person. So again, we've got to sort of extend our knowledge of king lists and who was there, what they were called. Did they exist in reality? Are they a figment of uh, later imagination? 
so it's it's by no means clear and the Hyksos period is uh, notorious for being a little tricky to negotiate shall we say but from a from a novelist point of view that's fabulous a lot of artistic license is possible yeah I was going to say that makes it ideal ideal territory for a, for a novel um Obviously, in, as the as the novel opens, we're in, in the reign of someone who Wilbur describes as Pharaoh uh, Mimosi, who I noticed does not appear on any king list that you give. Not yet, but it might be one day. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe Wilbur's just got a, got that channel to the afterlife, and uh, he's uh, not found yet. But there is someone called Sekenra. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Yeah, yeah. Um, who seems to have died a violent death. At around this time, what can yeah. you tell us about Sekenra? Oh, absolute giant of Egyptian history. I, I absolutely love Sekenra. He was the uh, the Theban. He was the Theban uh, local ruler um, who led the fight back. Really, um, him and his uh, sister Ahotep, his sister wife. Uh, so Sekenra and Ahotep. Um, very, very strong military leaders, both of them, male and female. And Sekenra was a, an amazing character, and we know so much about him because his his body was preserved. You can look at him today in, uh, in Cairo Museum. You can see him face-to-face, and you can get a real idea of, of, of this hero who died a hero's death at the hands, we think, of the Hyksos because in the 1970s, uh, analysis was carried out on the wounds this poor guy received um, and uh, the the blades that were used to inflict these wounds are of Hyksos type, specifically Hyksos blade shapes uh, because this is at the beginning of the fight back against the Hyksos when the Thebans are uh, still getting their head around this new military technology. It used to be thought that Second Ra had been killed in battle but the wounds are predominantly around his head. There are very few wounds on his arms, for instance. Um, and the most recent theory is that he was executed by the Hyksos after a, 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 a military um, encounter. Second Ray was then taken prisoner, taken up to possibly the Hyksos capital of Aris, and there executed in time-honored Egyptian fashion, ironically. Uh, which is by grabbing the victim by the hair, of which Second Ray had a lot. He's got thick, curly hair. And then the blade, uh, traditionally a mace, but in this case a mace, an axe, and a, a, possibly a scimitar, um, were, were brought down with great force on Second Ray's head. You can see the way the wounds caused obvious blood loss, the blood still matting the hair today. Um and it's uh, it's a, a very moving sight to see this body of this this great leader, a, a great Theban hero, still in those what can be called the throes of death, because you know clearly the poor man died in in agony. He was also mummified, interestingly enough. So there's a suggestion that maybe the body was given back to the Thebans. However, clearly some time had elapsed between his killing. And when the mummification process could begin, because putrefaction had st- certainly started, uh, the body fat had certainly started to degrade to the extent that when Second Ray's body was discovered at the end of the 19th century, having been reburied down in Thebes, 
who was taken to Cairo Museum, put in a glass case with some of the other royal mummies. But in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when researchers started to X-ray the royal mummies, when that glass case was opened, the, the scent of decomposition was hugely powerful. So the poor guy is still decomposing. The fat in his soft tissue in his skin is still breaking down and releasing these volatile compounds. Um, and so it's it's almost like you're revisiting a crime scene that's still going on now. The aftermath is still active, if you like, makes any sense, um, which is quite incredible. It, it shows the value of of a fragrance of scent over time, because one of the things which is fragrance and scent, yes. not just the, the nice part, the, the perfumes that they were making, but the way when things degrade and break down, they can also formation and give us a lot of evidence for, for barriers going back two, three thousand years. That's incredible. Archaeological forensics is really fascinating. It's like a sort of scene from Morse where they can have the results by Tuesday or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, and that's usually the deadline that they give us as well. It's like, yeah, can you just look at this data and, uh, and, and do it quick? Our, our research can literally take years because you're trying to look at a chemical fingerprint. So you yourself are actually acting as a, as a forensic scientist in these cases? Yeah, I mean, it's my background is, is, is Egyptology, but because we have the lab here and because for the last 25 years I've been studying physical remains to work with some brilliant scientists and in 2011, we actually mummified a human body donor, and I was part of the team involved in that. Um, and we did so with permission from the Home Office, Human Tissue Authority, some fantastic, fantastic medical colleagues. Um, and it was an amazing project that's still ongoing with our, our colleagues at Guy's St. Thomas's and King's College in London, who were also part of our team, although... The actual mummification was done up here in Yorkshire at Sheffield's Medical Legal Centre. Again, um, colleagues who are pathologists. So that was a, an amazing learning curve for all of us. And what a privilege to be part of this, this project, which really did write, rewrite how the Egyptians were mummifying. We thought we had all the answers. We thought, oh, yes, we know how the Egyptians mummified. No, we didn't. For the whole of the dynasty of Tutankhamun, the whole of the 18th dynasty, which whose existence was triggered by the death of Sekenre um, and how his surviving relatives coped, how they created the 18th dynasty after his death, um, that whole dynasty mummified in a completely revolutionary way, which we were able to understand and recreate in this same project. Um, and that was simply, but well, say simply, um, basically by studying all the x-rays of all the royal mummies that were taken um, in the 1960s and 70s, doing our own work in the Valley of the Kings with digital x-ray equipment and pinpointing details in the, the scans and the x-rays helped us understand so much better a lot of the iconography, the artistic representations, some of the architectural features of funerary temples where we believe these elite Egyptians were embalmed and mummified at this time. A lot of it starts to make more sense when 
you get the big picture if you like so from people just going oh mummies oh no no it, no that's not the way to look at egyptian mummified remains the way to look at these individuals are as fabulously important individuals who played a key part in this wonderful culture and who are still helping us understand their world today if we interpret them correctly treat them with the right level of respect and 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 fully engage with them they're still here with us they aren't a pile of bones like you know my immediate ancestors going back two or three generations we can scroll back multiple generations with the egyptians and see them as they were in life they have their hair their nails their facial features and if we engage properly with them we can actually understand them properly and tell their story and i think that's that's a great thing it's a great responsibility but it's a great privilege to to try and tap into all that so i i love my job let's just say that <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned there about how uh, second Ra's um kind of uh, descendants and family sort of set things up for the kind of the, the peak of um, king tutankhamun which in a sense i think i hadn't realized this in fact, most people won't realize this reading the book but that is the story of river god because second Ra leaves behind a widow um, who is possibly also his sister. Uh, and in fact, our fictional pharaoh Mimose also leaves behind a widow who is not his sister in the River God, uh, but is the Lady Lostris. Um, and in real life, the sister's called Ahotep. Um, and you said that you were very keen on her. Oh, amazing. When her body was found in the mid-19th century on the West Bank at Thebes, modern Luxor, it was an incredible discovery because her massive golden coffin, enormous coffin, uh, one of the largest ever found in Egypt, the two biggest coffins ever found in Egypt were way, way bigger than those described. One was Ahotep's, um, the other um, was uh, our, our daughter. Um, and these massive coffins were a mark of their immense stature. They were they, they were hugely powerful. And Ahotep, her coffin didn't just include her mummified body, but her stupendous jewellery, beautiful jewellery, and a matching set of weapons, axes, daggers, exquisite things. And it's that duality of pretty, very delicate, very nice, but very lethal as well. So it's it's the same duality we have when we're looking at the goddess, they're beautiful, but they can kill you in a kind of brilliant sort of bringing together of, of, of how the Egyptians viewed male and female. And with our Hotep, we know that she continued the armed struggle. Once Second Ray had been killed, we know from texts set up at Karnak Temple that she rallied the troops. She defended Egypt's borders. She continued with the war. It's all there in hieroglyphs. You know, traditionally Egyptology does like its written evidence, its hieroglyphs, even though only around 1% of anybody could ever read and write back then, a very small literate elite. But the texts tell us this. Her burial equipment tells us this. She was a, a massive figure. And of course, um, the son, uh, Ahotep and Second Ray, they're, they're, they had two sons, it's believed. One's Kamosi, who again died in the armed struggle, and a younger son called Achmosi, Achmosi being the first 
king of the 18th dynasty. And it was Ahmose's final push in pushing out the Hyksos once and for all and pushing them right back up into their heartlands up in the Levant that really created the Egyptian empire when it was at its greatest. He pushed them out and continued pushing until Egypt occupied that whole of the eastern Mediterranean seaboard as far north as the river Euphrates, up near, you know, up in Syria. And they did the same down in Nubia, modern Sudan. They pushed and pushed and pushed until they created the greatest empire the world had then seen. I mean, these people didn't mess about. And of course, having all this this, this land, this uh, territory, this wealth, allowed them to plough that back into Egypt itself and to build places like Karnak to equip bodies in the Valley of the Kings with so much gold, so much treasure, so much wealth. Um, so it, it, it was it was this kind of the Hyksos period, this complete pivotal time for Egypt when it, it it really did flower then into this this mighty 18th dynasty, this so-called golden empire, which it, it literally was. Oh, that's brilliant. And I think um, because Rob was telling the story forwards, as a reader of River God, you don't necessarily realise that all that is coming. Um, so listening to you now, it's, it's fantastic to realise that not only is this a, a great story in its own right, because clearly it's fictionalising um, Second Ra, Ahotep, um, and and Kamosi and Ahmosi, but um, that actually it is um, leading to this very dramatically kind of satisfying uh, next step. Uh, and in fact, there's a character in the novel, the, the son of Ahotep is um, called Memnon, but when he becomes pharaoh, he takes the name Tamosi, which I have to think is Wilbur kind of playing a bit with Amosi and Kamosi. Um, there's one bit of the book, which I think, again, having read your history of the period is maybe Wilbur taking a bit of artistic license so in the novel after they've been defeated by the um by by, by the Hyksos um they actually abandon so uh, Lustris who's the author of the Ahotep type character um abandons Thebes and they go up the river and they go right down through the Sudan all the way as far as modern day Khartoum where the Blue Nile and the White Nile meet um and uh and actually even further into Ethiopia but I think um that's maybe Wilbur um kind of uh, playing with the facts a bit because I is it right that they never actually abandoned Thebes? They never really abandoned Thebes, but there's also evidence that the Thebans were sort of very close to uh, their allies in a place called El Kab to the south of Egypt, um, close to where uh, close to Aswan on the, the southern border of, of modern Egypt today. But we do know that the early 18th dynasty did um, travel far into the Sudan, what is modern Sudan today. Um, they, they, they traveled extensively to the south via the Nile, which was very tricky because it's not easy to navigate after Aswan because they're what called cataracts, which are these rocky outcrops in the middle of the Nile where you can't continue to sail. You have to haul the boat out, drag it along the uh, sand and put it back into the river and continue on your way. But we do know that Egyptian royals of the early 18th dynasty, um, Ahmose and his immediate successors, in fact, uh, in three generations, 
uh, afterwards you, you you reach the mighty Hatshepsut to one of the female pharaohs and she made this journey with her father Tuthmosis I um, far to the south um, to these areas of modern Sudan and left inscriptions on the rock and very much uh, influenced uh, culture at that time. We know that they set up fortifications and so forth and and really did control this part um, of the extended Egyptian empire. So much of this part of Saddam was part of the Egyptian empire in the early 18th dynasty. Um, when we were in Khartoum filming the last series at the museum there, it was there was some incredible stuff that had come from uh, excavations uh, in and around the northern Sudan. And Egypt left such a, a, a sort of indelible mark on the country um, it's incredible building Egyptian style temples um, and ironically then in the fullness of time um, the, uh, the the Sudanese uh, rulers by around 7, 747 BC actually invaded Egypt and did the same but in reverse so the Sudanese are controlling Egypt and it's it's just a, a sort of Again, these two, what are now separate countries today, sharing so much of each other's cultures to the extent there are now more pyramids in the Sudan than were ever built in Egypt. So it's as if, you know, where, where on earth does ancient Egyptian culture stop? You know, it just goes on and on and on. And it was a, a fabulous privilege to be in Sudan and, and to see all these things. And with the tragic events that are happening at the time of recording now, all the, the, the violence in and around Khartoum and elsewhere, it, it breaks your heart, you know, it's these, these lovely people that, that were so hospitable and wonderful when we were there, and how they're suffering now. It's interesting that, I don't know what it is about the, the things we've studied um, over the last few years, but we've also been in Yemen a lot, studying, uh, spending a lot of time there, um, obviously in the days before all the violence, because they had a mummy-making culture that is very closely linked the Egyptian because they were trading with Egypt in the first millennium BC and possibly even earlier uh, and so wherever there are points of interest for some reason there are also these flashpoints of extreme violence um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's often incredibly poignant the places that, that we have colleagues we've worked with wonderful colleagues and then it's, it's, it's really sad to think you know that they're, they're going through all all the things that they are going through at the moment. Absolutely. In terms of Egypt, so that, that at one time or another, Hyksos, Assyrians, Nubians, Greeks, Romans, all come back, and it's, it's a bit like sort of the Low Countries in in Europe, where they're, they're like a battle, or Poland, for example, which is a country which endlessly armies are sweeping across. So, so you have these cultures sweeping over Egypt, and yet somehow the identity of Egypt survives. So, what is the essential thing that is, as it were, the bit that survives even after Ptolemy's come in, and as say Caesar and what have you? How, how does Egypt stay Egypt? Oh, that's very, very easy. That's basically because Egyptian culture and religion are so interlinked and all foreign invaders could see that what they could bring to the table was nothing in comparison. What did the Greeks and Romans offer after death? Oh, you sink down into some miserable black 
hole in the ground and and it was all tragic and horrible. The Egyptians offered the promise of eternal life. All you needed to be is embalmed and mummified and your soul could live forever. And a lot of these cultures thought, yeah, we can buy into that. The Greeks, the Ptolemies certainly did. They certainly did. Alexander the Great left orders to be mummified at death. He wanted to, to do this, to live in the next world in a, in a way that the Egyptians were, were clearly uh, fully uh, believing in themselves. It was obviously their belief system. But it, it clearly was so impactful on all these so-called foreign invaders that they, they wanted a piece of that for themselves. Alexander did it. His Ptolemaic descendants did it. Um, the Romans did it, not only in Egypt, where they occupied, but also bringing this same practice back to their own heartlands, if you like. So you do find the practice of mummification and the worship of Egyptian gods in many parts of the Greek world. You certainly see it in Italy, not just in Rome, but around Italy itself. Of course, the wonderful thing for me is when uh, Rome had conquered Egypt in 30 BC and then uh, came to our sunny shores, uh, 43 AD, the wonderful thing was there were Egyptians in the Roman army. They brought with them their, their traditional belief systems. As the Roman army then spread up through Britain as far as York established the city of Ibaracum, uh, the uh, practices came with them. So the most northerly temple ever built anywhere uh, for the worship of the gods of Egypt was on the banks of the River Ouse here in Yorkshire, in York. Uh, they were even mummifying their dead. Wow. So I just find that mind-blowing. I, I, that Finding that out um, was, was a wonderful thing because you spend your life feeling very odd and wondering why on earth have I been obsessed by this for so long? And when you realise that not really new, Joanne, you know, uh, this sort of thing's been happening in Yorkshire for 2,000 years, and to think they were worshipping Egyptian gods 2,000 years ago is a wonderful, wonderful amazing thing and and i've done such a lot of work over the last 20 30 years to look at the links between ancient egypt and yorkshire which seem so very far apart and yet they aren't there are so many things that have been found that are inexplicable at first it's like well what's this bronze statuette of goddess isis doing here in yorkshire oh well you know it's always assumed oh it must be the uh, some sort of a gentleman collector an aquarian who accidentally dropped it well, he's dropping a lot of stuff because there's a lot of stuff being found it's actually often in context uh dating back to roman times some two thousand years ago because this stuff's coming over from egypt you know a couple of millennia ago and 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 sort of being discovered in in more modern times um because it it, it came over as a, a a practical part of a religious system that infiltrated so many people who went to Egypt thought they'd conquered Egypt. But as I said in the last series, in fact, Egypt conquered them. And I think it still does. I think it's so profound, its effect on people that, you know, it gets into your DNA, as it were. Amazing. River God, as a book, was written kind of against the will of Wilbur Smith's publishers and then sold 10 million copies. And there's been... I know five, six, seven sequels. It's because it's something which just does fascinate people. And, and, and we were talking earlier about music, 
and dance like an Egyptian. Okay, how did Egyptians dance and what did the music sound like? Oh, their dancers are fabulous. Um, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely, I love to, to try and understand Egypt on a multi-sensory level, which sounds a bit poncy, but it's really, you can't just look at the ancient Egyptians to be able to recreate their perfumes. How did their world smell? Uh, how did it sound? And for me, that's an integral part of it, to try and understand ancient Egyptian music. We featured some wonderful Egyptian musicians um, on the last series. They research and study ancient Egyptian musical instruments. They've recreated them. Uh, we can plug in and, and hear how these things sounded. Um, and to, to just get an idea of this, this wonderful percussive sound, the beats of their music and how dance steps would have worked and what dance steps, you know, you can see the tomb scenes uh, and the way that they show almost like a comic strip of, it isn't just like uh, lots lots of multiple dancers, it's the same dancer doing a move, uh, but in sort of freeze frame, you can see the backflips, you can see the the way that the steps are performed. Even in Egyptian folk dancing today, there's this step that they do where they do this giant stride, this kind of stepping over from this world to the next. And you can see this, if you look carefully, in the tomb images, in the visual scenes that have survived, because people, again, like to think there's some sort of disconnect between ancient and modern Egypt, and there's no disconnect whatsoever. It's a continuum. And, of course... Islam is very different to ancient Egyptian religion, but the Egyptians are the Egyptians. They're still there, and it's uh, there's there's no no cutoff point. So I've been in a privileged position of adopted by an Egyptian a traditional Egyptian family on the West Bank at Luxor, and to sit at home in you know in the corner of of the house and just watch and just watch life go by is. It's so fabulous. It's it's just taught me so much and how people, families dance at home when, you know, just interacting with each other as we all do in, in the, the sort of privacy of our own homes. And I, I, that's just, just been an amazing thing. And how there are sort of, we were saying earlier that the, you know, men and women lived side by side and all that. Uh, but today, it's sort of when the men have gone out to work on a morning and, and it's it's just us women and the kids in the house and, you know, the radio goes on and, and we all have a bit of a dance if we feel like it. I just love that. And it's it's that glimpse into this intimate world. It's it's lovely. I mean, obviously, then the, the bread might need baking or, you know, the chickens might need looking after. But it's it's just this joyful, wonderful world that's, usually hidden away but you, you just get to, to see it and to share in it and uh, it's just it's just fabulous it's like looking at Egypt on on multiple levels at the same time so to see how how Egyptians today are in so many ways very little different to their their ancestors going back millennia is 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 just it's just a wonderful thing and as you're, you're talking about you know, different ways of bringing sort of ancient Egypt to life, obviously, one of the ways is through fiction. And certainly, I think, obviously, for, for millions and millions of people, reading Wilbur's novels will have been maybe their kind of introduction, uh, or certainly a very, very powerful 
vividly imagined uh, rendition of what Egypt might have been like. I'm curious, as a as an Egyptologist, as an archaeologist, as a historian, do you welcome that, or do you worry that if you get novelists coming in and kind of making stuff up, filling in the gaps? maybe getting things wrong, maybe tweaking history to suit the story they want to tell, uh, that that's, uh, that's going to be problematic. I think in the short term, it can sometimes be problematic. because I do a lot of talks all over the place. And quite often, if people have read a novel and in their mind they think, oh, well, I know I've read it somewhere, that the Egyptians did this, this and this, it, it can depend on the novel. The bigger picture is that, look, does this bring people into the world of ancient Egypt, does it make them want to know more? Does it make them want to read fact books? Does it make them want to maybe visit their local museum? Does it make them want to go on holiday to Egypt? And the answer is quite often yes, so bring it on. I just think that's a wonderful thing. You know, it's sort of, it's a culture that should be more widely appreciated and understood. And if it's a means by which people can engage in a sort of uh, an interesting engaging way, that that's that's great because let's face it, a lot of fact fact based books can be dry as dust. <laughs> Plow through them, um, but if 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 they've read a, a fascinating novel and, and thought, wow, this is this is pretty good. I wonder if they really did that. And then they, they, they go out and, and, and read up or, or, or watch documentaries or whatever. I, I think, to be honest, uh, the more the merrier. To listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it, it, for me, anybody talking about ancient Egypt can only be a good thing. <laughs> well, you were mentioning earlier, right at the very beginning, that there's, that, that, as it were, that, that Egypt stretches all the way from an African south in Upper Egypt to a Mediterranean Levantine north in Lower Egypt. And then, of course, you then have, I suppose, the Greek influence when the Ptolemies come in. So there's been a huge fuss over what Cleopatra did or did not look like and how she should or should not be represented. So in your, I mean, it's, look, she was 2,000 years ago, so, but, but who was she in, in terms of her culture and presumably, therefore, of her appearance and you know, what, how would you have described Cleopatra? Cleopatra the Great, uh, I go into this at some length as it's a chunky old book and I spent five years of my life writing it but I've been researching the great woman for many years, obviously part of the Ptolemaic dynasty, um, descended from the first Ptolemy who was a general of Alexander the Great who the records describe as but he had uh, um, fair hair palish towsley hair uh, hanging down to his shoulders a lot of descriptions of Alexander um, Ptolemy was his general but there's good evidence he was his likely half brother they shared the same father Philip of Macedon when it comes to Cleopatra herself she was born in Egypt Egypt's in Africa therefore she is African her family are Macedonian Greek. Her father's Macedonian Greek. Uh, some of the Ptolemies, certainly Ptolemy II and his sister wife, Arsinoe II, are described again in contemporary poetry as having blonde hair. That's just in the literature. 
The thing about Cleopatra is, however, we know her father was Ptolemy XII, Macedonian Greek by descent. We don't know who Cleopatra's mother was for sure. And we don't know who her grandmother was for sure. Now, this is largely because the Romans, you know, history is rewritten by the victors and Augustus, who apparently defeated Cleopatra, um, had all documents shredded, had all evidence removed, had inscriptions carved out, um, making it very difficult for us to reconstruct who exactly Cleopatra was and what she actually did. So as a historian, I had to consult Greek, Latin, Egyptian sources and uh, multiple uh, source materials. But the fact we don't know who her mother was or her grandmother makes you wonder who these women were. It's also very telling that, it, that Cleopatra was the first of 300 years of Ptolemy's ruling Egypt to understand and speak and be able to communicate in Egyptian. All the others had spoken Greek, not Cleopatra. She was proficient in seven or eight languages. Uh, her everyday Greek, uh, even her handwriting survived. That was only discovered what, about 20 years ago. We have the great woman's handwriting. Um, as I said, Greek for her everyday language, but she could converse with her Egyptian subjects in their own language. How did she know that? Was it something that she wanted to learn herself, quite possibly? Did she learn it from her mother and her grandmother, who could well have been Egyptians? So, you know, the jury's out. All I would say is, for me, as a redhead, fascinating image from Herculaneum, of all places, showing a portrait that uh, many of us believe to be the great woman and she has red hair. So what's not to love, you know? Um, whether this dyed hair, whether this was natural, it's an interesting one. PhD actually was on the subject of hair in ancient Egypt. So clearly I'm drawn to this subject hugely. But I think the way that Cleopatra is portrayed, again, We've been talking about the polarisation. What is ancient Egypt? It's African. Yes. But there's also influences from the Levant and the Mediterranean, clearly. It's the same with Cleopatra. We all want her to be like us. So speaking as a woman born and bred in Barnsley in Yorkshire, there's always been a standing joke that I wouldn't be happy until I proved Cleopatra actually came from Barnsley. So wasn't it wonderful when a few years ago, a few years ago, we were working on a Roman coin hoard found just outside Barnsley at a wonderful place called Darfield. And the very first silver coins I, I looked at were silver coins minted by Mark Antony and his Egyptian wife, Cleopatra. Wow. And the coins themselves show that Cleopatra herself paid for the 500 warships that fought at the Battle of Actium where Cleopatra herself was physically present with Mark Antony. So I'm not saying that we had the last lap, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting closer to proving that she probably did come from Barnsley, actually. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe fled to Barnsley after she'd uh, been defeated in Egypt, the lost years. I'm sure there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a novel in that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Barnsley Cleopatra sounds like a title of a novel in itself. Actually, it was a Radio Times um, title uh, with the last series. It said Barnsley's Cleopatra, 
So, uh, in in reference to the series, so I, that made me chortle quite a bit. <laughs> there you go. I think it sounds a bit like a nightclub. Should go, but uh... yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, Patrick, so it would be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, can I just say, by the as as the child of a redhead mother, whose maternal line were all blonde and redheaded Nordic people, if Cleopatra's a redhead, rock on, rock on. Totally. And of course, in the novel, um, uh, Tannis is described as having kind of reddish hair, isn't he? Tannis, the the hero, the sort of the military uh, genius. Something integral to the Hyksos is that the Egyptians often uh, portrayed people from the Levant, from the eastern Mediterranean seaboard area, with red hair. Um, And they made a, a great play of that. And it's interesting that the male god, that the Hyksos worshipped in Egypt. They worshipped Egyptian gods like the sun god Ra, but they also worshipped their own version of uh, Baal, the Middle Eastern god of storms, who in Egypt is Seth. And Seth in Egyptian mythology is traditionally shown with red hair. And after the Hyksos period had ended, the Egyptians who took over uh, would always refer to turbulent people i'm not saying trouble causes but people who were quite volatile and turbulent as the red-headed forms the followers of seth and that was fair enough until the pharaohs of the 19th dynasty ramses ii and his father seti took power after the fall of the house of tutankhamun they took power and lo and behold they were redheads and so isn't it interesting that seth this turbulent god this red creature was suddenly rehabilitated within the Egyptian pantheon. He was suddenly seen as one of the good guys. Oh, yes, he's, he's a defender of the sun god. We've loved Seth all along. Um, and certainly we've got Ramses II as an older pharaoh when his, the red hair of his youth was fading, actually using henna. Tests have been done on his hair, and his hairdressers were actually augmenting the colour with red henna dye. Um, just to sort of keep his his trademark red hair going. Um, and I, again, it's this little window into this world of, you know, this aging pharaoh. He seems sat there with his hairdressers, putting the, putting the dye on, touching up his roots. Love it. Absolutely love it. I have to say, uh, I also was born a redhead, and, and like Ramses II, my, my red hair is now fading. But I think my mother would certainly recognise uh, why the uh, stormy, tumultuous, violent god might might indeed uh, be, be portrayed as a redhead. Yeah, and also in, within Egyptian society, where the vast, vast majority had dark hair, very dark hair, yeah. the flash of a, a red-headed person would have been, oh, you know, quite quite striking, quite unusual. Um, so hair colour in ancient Egypt's another, uh, it can be a political hot potato, but, you know, they were there and, and they're in the text, they're in the physical uh, sort of uh, body of evidence that we have, so. Yeah, that's amazing. I think maybe we should, um, on that note, maybe we should uh, give the last word to Wilbur, who should, in fact, in, in his last words in, um, in Rivergod, uh, in his, his author's notes, he says, uh, I'm left with a realisation of how little the emotions and aspirations of man have changed in all that time 
since since the ancient Egypt period. And I think um, what you've done wonderfully for us today, Joe, is to just really put flesh on those bones and just show us uh, how everything from from the nature of redheads through the uh, the makeup, the aspirations of people, um, the way they lived. Um, obviously, thing, things change, but an awful lot of things stay the same. So thank you so much for joining us um, and, and for filling in that history. Yes, thank you so much, Joanne. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've loved talking about this. Um, so thank you for inviting well, me. There are lots more Egyptian books in the canon, so come back soon, because we have more Egypt to talk about. Oh, I'd love to. Brilliant. You only have to invite me and I'll be there. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and also, of course, we're both in Yorkshire, which I shall now, and I'm in York, which I shall now forever think of as the Thebes of, uh, of, of England. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> Cleopatra is a Barnsley lass. I think that's the takeaway from this this episode. <laughs> Only in your world, but it, it makes me smile. <laughs> Fantastic. And... If you have been as informed and entertained as Diana and I have both been uh, by Joe's incredible knowledge of ancient Egypt, uh, then do go and check out her website, which is immortalegypt, or one word, .co.uk. That's immortalegypt.co.uk, uh, where you can find all about her books, uh, her YouTube channel, uh, and many other things that she is up to. So do please join us again next time when we'll be taking a look at one of the books that Wilbur co-wrote with my co-host, Diana Thomas, uh, under her nom de guerre of David Churchill, uh, Courtney's War, and in particular the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, with its disturbing similarities to today's war in Ukraine. So uh, on that note, it is goodbye from me, Tom Harper. And it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. Smith's show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay.